Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and head of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. My guest today has had over 20 years experience in the healthcare and biotechnology sector. He has held several managing partner and managing director positions and is a specialist in healthcare science, technology, analytics, healthcare digital, leadership in that space and strategic management. Prior to this, he had a fulfilling military career where he mastered his leadership skills, dedication to service and pride in excellence. This experience was vital and complementary when he later moved into the consulting world and leadership in business. But before we get into that, here's a message from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Quality Transformation. Businesses are continuously looking to optimize performance and operations, as well as seeking ways to bridge the gap between their products and the deployment with their customers. The innovation ideas are not the issue, rather realizing them is often the roadblock, and in particular when digital technologies come into play. Quality Transformation brings in significant experience and the right skill set to support you in complex transformations. Our senior advisor can support you by delivering strong projects, programs, portfolio leadership, coaching, as well as performing independent quality assurance. Visit us at quality-transformation.com and get in touch for further information. Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. John Devil is the General Manager, Solutions EMEA for GE Healthcare. He held a number of positions, including Managing Partner for Finamore, Chief of Strategic Partnerships and Solutions for Europe, Directorial Positions in Leading Management Consulting Firms, and his focus throughout has been the interface between healthcare and life science technologies. John, a former Lieutenant Colonel in the British Army, was awarded the MBE and the Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service. In his role in a leading global medical technology and digital solutions organisation, he is at the forefront in innovation and future design and healthcare provisions and models. John is multilingual. His language skills include French, German, Italian, Serbish, Farsi, and Croatian. He has a very engaging demeanor about him, enormously respected in his field, a consummate professional leader, and the word that is repeated in the description of him by people he has led, as well as his peers, is integrity. Though I've only worked briefly with John in the past, I totally agree with the sentiments of the people that provided their feedback. I also add my memory of his good humor, modesty, his steely focus, and the instant rapport one gets working with him. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome John to Headstalk. Hi, John, how are you? Elaine, I am embarrassed at all those words about me, but I'm delighted to be here and I'm very well, thank you. Um, I, I, I really like to start this conversation with a, a fairly heavy question and a fascinating one as well. So once again, really glad to have you with us. Um, it's a fairly long intro, so bear with me and I will get to the question. Right, um, the pandemic has had quite a few casualties. The current number of deaths worldwide is 1.25 million, and the current number of UK is nearly uh, 50K. There's been a lot of criticism of the government's leadership, handling of the reaction to this. Um, there's also been, in the UK at least, a sense of the government and the medical professionals not working together optimally for the best outcome. Though I must add, the medical workers have been rightfully praised for their dedication and management of the situation, in spite of the decisions made by the government. As mentioned in the introduction, you work quite heavily in the technological provisions in this space. You've also spent a considerable amount of time in the military. 
and can do a comparison in terms of reactions in this space. The military is known for its precision and timely responses. It is also known for utilizing all that it can in its vicinity, working and collaborating as it sees necessary to get the desired outcome. My question to you, John, is what can and should be learned from the military that can and should be implemented in the civilian environment, and in particular the NHS? What do you suggest should happen? I think, Elaine, it's really quite easy to point fingers at those responsible for handling a crisis and making decisions in the tough times yeah. and to make judgments. It's a bit similar, if you like, to sometimes you hear armchair generals, as they're called, commenting on live action <laughs> from, the, from the cosy safety of a well-lit drawing room. I personally think that the NHS in England, as you said, has definitely risen to the challenge magnificently. Mm. And I don't think, in terms of the way the question's put, that it's necessary to implement military models within it at all. Mm. But the military is famous for many things, I guess, or it has a reputation for clarity of strategy, planning and execution. But I would point out that it, in doing that, the military is reliant on several things including clarity at the political level to allow it to work well within constraints, great logistics, and in fact, logistics is one of the principles of war, and working closely with allies. So I don't think that the, I don't think that the military has any monopoly on any of those good things about strategy, planning and execution. Mm -hmm. I think the rapidity of change shown by the NHS has been of a very high order. Well, I do think it's been very hard for the politicians with so much going on for them and internationally, it's a new experience. Mm -hmm. But I do think very clearly that mistakes were made on logistics. And I'm thinking about PPE in particular. Yes, yes. And in terms of what I think should happen, I think it's important to make a policy and stick to it. And that means, and this is the same as, as, as when a military intervention is decided to be necessary, Start by identifying very clearly what success looks like. Ensure that logistics are, are first class. Don't be afraid to learn from other countries where success appears to have been achieved. That's the, the, going to the, I think, the, the connection with allies in, in the army and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And in that context, use test and trace when it's appropriate. But as we've seen in Germany more recently and elsewhere, it isn't always appropriate. And finally, of course, this is... I think people overuse military analogies to an extent, but if it is like a war, then one expects to take casualties. And in doing that, it's really important to protect the most vulnerable. And I said, that's, that's the sort of thing. Uh, that's my reaction to your question. All right, thank you, John. That was, that was pretty comprehensive. Um, staying with relationships and how different groups work with each other, um, with this hopefully once in a generation pandemic, how do you believe the private and public sector relationship has changed in terms of the roles played to solve this problem? I think there's already a huge, uh, and not everybody that I speak to understand this, but there is a massive symbiosis between public and private sectors in, in the NHS and in the health service in this country already. Um, here, the private sector plays a role in, in direct care, Mm -hmm. in acute mental health, social care, in primary care, GP practices, they're all, they're all private businesses, mm -hmm. in diagnostics, in logistics, and so on. 
I think it was Angela Merkel in Germany who commented recently along the lines that the public sector always becomes extraordinarily fashionable when there's a crisis to deal with. And one can also see that playing out now. So I think where countries have a perception that they've handled things better, and you know, it's universally acknowledged, as I said, I think, that the, the NHS has done a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. That kind of cements it into the into the, the consciousness and makes it slightly harder sometimes for the private sector to work alongside it. Um, but at the same time, what I think we've seen in the NHS is, is um, the enormous value demonstrated by those companies which have been mm. organised, if you like, uh, to, to work alongside the NHS. And that I think that that will look set to continue. I do know, I absolutely know that there's enormous willingness on both sides of the public-private sector deb debate to make that happen. Mm -hmm. so, so, so effectively, everyone has risen to that challenge. Well, yes. In a, the few things unite different players as well as a crisis, and this has been a jolly good crisis in, in, in from mm -hmm. that perspective in in healthcare. What happens next, though? What seems to have happened? We've had about twenty years of rapid evolution in healthcare in a very short number of months. Mm -hmm. The challenge for us as we emerge from the other side, as I very much hope that we will very soon, is how much of the benefit, if you like, of this uh, acceleration and change we can retain. And I think the private-public sector join is one of those benefits. Mm. So that remains to be seen. And let's move on. And let's talk about some of the, the healthcare solutions that are out there and some of the work the organisation is doing. Um, you're in the heart of it. Um, can you, for my listeners, give us a taste of some of the innovative and um, smart solutions in your line of work to address some of the complex problems that stemmed out of the current pandemic? I think there has been an awful lot of innovation um, and some of that innovation has been a lot more visible than some others. So for us in GE, getting Ford to work with us on ventilator production, as in fact we managed to do in some of our factories, which are ostensibly designed for jet engine manufacture, Mm -hmm. uh, that that has been a real class act that, that, that I've seen at first hand. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it more, primary care is now, for most people, it, it's a digital experience. Most of you talk to a GP, you'll probably be doing it over the telephone or over the internet and outpatients similarly. Mm -hmm. Everything has become digital consumer uh, in terms of those elements of care. So care pathways are now being transformed to minimize contact and waiting time. And that means using a lot of AI and analytics in the background to manage the flow of patients in the foreground, as well as to do, to do the guiding of diagnostics and therapies, which is quite well established. Yeah. And I, th I think that's pretty impressive to see, actually. Yes, that, that does sound pretty impressive. So what is the next generation of technology in the healthcare sector that impresses you? What you're talking about is currently happening. What, what's the next generation? And, and what working practices are you changing with your developments and innovation? What manual and mundane activities are, are you automating? That's, there's at least two questions there. But I, I think, so I personally, uh, I always have been, uh, and I remain very impressed by the GE command centres mm -hmm. from, from our own perspective. These can run regions or whole countries of healthcare systems, like control towers running airports. Mm -hmm. I'm also very impressed by the architecture we have we call it edison for reasons of history i guess mm -hmm. which enables third-party applications to be developed on, on a on a singular architecture mm -hmm. using ai as i said before not just on images but to solve patient flow and patient um, direct customer problems more generally 
in terms of the next generation of technology that's coming up. I think it's well known. We're now in the area of genomics and cell therapies. This is absolutely massive, and this is going to enable personalized medicine and offers the potential to cure the previously incurable. And on the other side, and this, this is the thing, this is very much a, what you might call a first world conversation. I really like the mobile light technologies like V-Scan, and it's, it's a mobile ultrasound scanner, mm -hmm. which can help transform maternity services in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. All right. we're, we're in a, we seem to be, we are in an increasingly polarized world of the haves and the haves nots. Mm -hmm. And the technologies which can advance the people of a whole continent of people who need care at scale are for me seriously meaningful. And what I'm going to change forever? Yes. Well, those technologies are going to help change healthcare, but for me, it's a lot more personal. I'm going to be working at home for quite a long time. <laughs> I think I found out that, it, that it's possible. And I think it's uh, the whole of this stuff of the recent pandemic mm -hmm. has helped many people, I think, to figure out it's possible to work smart and live smart and look after things which are important for at least some of the time in a way that we really didn't before. You know, we, we could talk this whole episode about all these developments that you've just mentioned. I mean, I'm sure you just mentioned a fraction of what you guys are doing. And there's a lot of amazing technological advancement and deployment in your sector. And it's easy to see why um, you would talk enthusiastically about it. I can hear your enthusiasm. I'm quite enthusiastic to hear about it, the technical aspects of the solution and the work that went into the development of such a solution. But your buyers are not really sold on the detail. They are more concerned about their needs being met, however it's met. How do you go about translating some of the amazing work you're doing in your organization into a language that the buyers want to hear and feel you understand what it is they need for your organization? What is the process? Well, it, every buyer, if that's the word, is in a different place. And I think that buyers are people and they need to be understood. Mm -hmm. What that means, I think, is that the words used should be in their terms and in their language and be right for them. So when it comes to selling versus buying, it's really super clear that empathy and listening are far more important than, than saying, than talking. And true understanding of what buyers seek to achieve can only be achieved through listening, I think, and validating and listening again. So in, in, like, in a way, it sort of turns the question on its head, how we, how we translate it into what buyers need is by listening to the buyers themselves that, that, that that's the only way really that it works i think mm, okay that's good and you touched upon ai in your previous answer um, ai is in this space and increasingly um, i'm looking at developments in this area and while i'm extremely fascinated by the progress uh, of what can be done um, how do you balance this with human roles i mean should we worry about this in terms of certain roles being obsolete no, I don't think so. Particularly, you know, G GE, we, we are very big in radiology, for example, and I, I'm sure that might lie behind the question to an extent. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a worry there. I think that the nature of the profession is very likely to, to evolve using this new technology mm -hmm. to become where radiologists will in future become more like diagnosticians. Mm -hmm. In fact, I heard the chair of the European Society of Radiologists saying as much, so I feel quite comforted by that in making mm -hmm. this assertion. 
And I think we should all face it actually. And, and this is in the case, very much the case in, in the UK as elsewhere, we've got nowhere near enough trained radiologists to cope with the demand that we see already and can foresee. And AI can be a huge help to them, both in decision support, in terms of making the decision, clinical, clinical decision support, and in prioritizing the work in front of them. Mm-hmm. So, no, I, I don't think there is a worry, but I absolutely understand, of course, why some professionals might have that concern. Yes. Um, yes. And, and again, in your, in your previous answer, you, talk, you touched upon digital. You say everything is digital now, and that's how we work. Um, we, in the tech space, you hear a lot about blockchain, AI, automation, IoTs, and digital twins. Digital twin, especially in the healthcare sector. Um, we've not been here before, and tools such as Hospital of the Future will aid hospitals to visualize the range of potential lawyers and help shape their response. It really gives a different meaning to the word new, and your organization is one of the big players in this space. Please, for my listeners, can you educate us on digital twin? What are you and your organization doing in this space, and are you working with startups in this? And Is this about transforming the hospital business model? Just, just tell us what you, what's going on there, John. Sure. Okay. A digital twin is is a a sort of digital simulation of a machine or a component or a technology or an organization like a hospital, for example. And then this simulation can be trained to perform predictably exactly as does the original, which is why it's called a twin. Mm -hmm. What it actually looks like, you can't, you know, it's data, software, a computer program. And once it's set up, it's possible to test real life scenarios in complete safety by feeding them digitally to the simulation. Mm-hmm. So in GE, we're very we're, we're able and very practiced with this thing you called um, the hospital of the future model. Mm. We can do everything from a jet engine to a hospital system in this way. Mm-hmm. And working with startups, yes, we do. We um, in GE Bios and GE Healthcare, we we spend north of a billion dollars a year on R and D, and we are very much interested in in startups, particularly in AI. Yes. And then you, you said how it transforms the hospital business model. It doesn't. Oh. It's, this, these, these, that's not quite how, transformation is such a big word. AI cannot, or any of this technology cannot bring about transformation by itself. Otherwise, healthcare would have been transformed a long time ago. Yeah. Trans, transformation in healthcare is about new business models supported by new technologies new medical, new clinical practices, and crucially, a changed workforce. Changing behaviours is a huge part of transformation in in healthcare. So I think AI can play a role, and it does, but new business models, particularly integrated care, are fundamental to transformation. All right. Okay, so let's look into the future, say five years, ten years from now. Um, can you visualize and explain one the technology side and two the process side? What is it that you you see being done in the the, the relevant tech space, biotech, medtech space, or you know, AI as you mentioned, um, that can only imagine or wish for? I mean, I'd be interested in your input on this. Effectively, um, you'll be describing the gaps and where and what we need to fill. And two, um, it's with regards to the process with the service provisions and or activities be more holistic. Um, with the different organizations, groups, stakeholders working collaboratively, sharing data and provide the best possible services and care to the end patient. Will it, will it be, I think, what they call total health care? Or is this a dream that will never be realized? Okay, well, that's a, 
Elaine, that's a complicated and demanding question. So <laughs> well, we're we Can I visualize? Well, I'll try and paint a picture for you. So, in in the future, just say maybe in ten years' time, I don't know. I'm, I might be at home, I might get up, I might have my morning daily check using a smart device which I'm wearing or carrying in my hand, something like a home scanner or something like that. And this scanner might alert me that there is something that needs to be done, for example. Might ask, it would then ask me digitally if I would like a remote consultation and if I say yes, and it probably would be said, I wouldn't have to press any buttons, it would connect me very quickly with a real human I can see. Who would be able to immediately help me to understand what's occurring yeah. this is a, if it's a problem which cannot immediately be sorted out you know, literally in the home mm -hmm. so we agree me and the human that i can see i guess that i need a more detailed scan or whatever than she i'm going to call her a she can achieve remotely so ai is used to make the next available appointment in the in the, which is convenient to me with my digital schedule uh, and local to me and this won't be in a hospital, but in a clinic or something like that. And there I go, and I will be no doubt wafted in my self-piloting car, I guess. <laughs> um, but but um, there I'd be diagnosed within hours and referred for immediate treatment, assuming it's something serious. Mm -hmm. As much as possible is done in the, is, at the clinic, because this is, a, this is integrated care supported by digital. But if it is serious, I might automatically be directed to a specialist facility where, for example, those cell therapies that I mentioned before might be used to treat something serious, very serious for me, an illness or whatever, which is tuned exactly to the way my body works and will react. But the vast majority of the treatment for me, most of the, most of the times, would be at home. And it's quite unlikely that I'd need to stray further forward. Right. So this features the use of teletechnologies, yes. quite a lot of which exist already, teleconsultation, which exists already, Advanced diagnostics, which exist already, highly tuned therapeutics, which exist already. And at no point do I have to put my information in more than once. So is that, um, is that total health care? It's not a term I've heard before, but yes, it is integrated care. And absolutely, Elaine, it's not a dream. This happens already in places like Ribera Salud in Valencia in Spain. There are many other examples too. So it, it can be done, it will be done. I guess, as I said before, the world is bifurcated a bit into the world of haves and have not. So in advanced societies like the one we're fortunate to live in, mm -hmm. I think it's very likely to happen. Um, mm. God so, and politicians willing. You know, when I thought of this question, this question, I thought, oh, this is so way into the future. Um, 10 years if we're lucky, maybe 15 years. But what I'm gathering from your answer, it's already happening. It's starting to happen. So that's, that's Yes, it does happen. It doesn't happen. So there's quite a lot of, um, it's very difficult to bring this all about. But as I, it's not really about the technology. Technology is seldom an obstacle anymore. Mm -hmm. I think it is our ability as human beings and as professionals to adapt to it when a revolution in technology happens every 18 months or three years or whatever it is. Mm -hmm is far bigger a problem. And that, that's why it goes back to the business models and the behavioral change. All right, it's about human beings changing. Okay, well, that's another topic which we will move swiftly away from. Um, let's <laughs> move on. <laughs> um, okay, apparently this next question is the most divisive question of 2020. It's regard to COVID-19 and the responses to it. The question is, is the cure worse than the disease? 
I think we're talking about, among other things, the, the economic impact here and the long-term effects of government decisions. Some would argue that economic death, social isolation, is a greater killer of humans than the disease itself. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that well-being in a holistic sense is as fundamental as physical health. And I think that health of the mind is at least, if not more, as precious as well-being of the body. Mm -hmm. And we know that well-being is intimately associated with self-actualization, as it used to be called when I learned about it, achieved through work. So therefore, we have to maintain the foundation of an economy within which work is possible, or we have completely lost it. Mm. I don't, however, think that well-being is achieved by wealth. I do think it is achieved through health and that we need the economy, economy to be healthy too. So overall, Elaine, I think it's a balance and we can see governments all over the world striving to achieve that balance as they walk along the tightrope um, of uh, keeping the economy going and mm. keeping people locked down, including here in the UK. Let's end on the topic that we began with, leadership. Um, you're a leader in the healthcare industry. You were a leader in the management consulting world in well-known consulting organisations. You've been a leader for many years in the military. We've all seen that meme and phrase, leadership is a privilege. Do you agree, John, and tell us why? Well, I think over my working life thus far, I have been extremely fortunate to fill leadership roles. And while I have fulfilled them, I've striven to serve those people in my charge as a leader. Yes, I absolutely regard it as a privilege indeed. I think these days, these days everybody, everywhere, because of the, the pandemic we've talked about, you can see good leaders adapting and directing with clarity. You can see them supporting and you can see them inspiring. Good leadership in crisis and the rest of the time really is for me, about intelligent humanity and it's absolutely about service so fundamentally for me I, I consider myself blessed to have had the opportunity for, to fulfill the role of leader for so many people for so many years mm -hmm. um, and that's what it means to me excellent um, I'm sure we'll get a lot of feedback on this discussion because it's such an interesting topic not just about leadership but a lot of the stuff you talked about in healthcare, a lot of the innovations that you've put on the table. Um, I'll provide our listeners with a, a link to some of the stuff you're talking about, if I may. Um, but in the meantime, John Devril, many thanks for your time and insights. Elaine, it has been an absolute pleasure and thank you very much indeed for the time. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executive decision makers and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.